BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast, where we discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina offers a great way to stay on top of the most important news from China through a free email newsletter, a handy smartphone app, and, of course, the website subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo, and today I'm at George Washington University in the city I like to call Beijing. Uh, it's also known as Washington, D.C. Let's hear you guys make a little noise. All right. More noise to come. Jeremy Goldcorn, the notorious Jiumi, is unable to be here with me this week, but he sends his warmest regards from Nashville, Tennessee. Everyone say, Ni hao Jiumi. All right, he's going to be very touched to hear that. Anyway, so seven years ago this week on April 1st, I'm not fooling you, April 1st, 2010, Jeremy and I sat down with today's guest to record the very first Seneca podcast about Google's decision to leave China. Now, seven years on, all three of us have followed Google's example and have also left China. But I am delighted to be here in the the city that he now calls home, this guy here, uh, with the one and only Bill Bishop. Bill. Great to be back in front of microphones with you, man. Thanks for having me. I can't believe it's been seven years. Yeah, seven One, years. we're old, and two, it's longer than most marriages. <laughs> yeah, well, let's give it up for... <laughs> God, that's depressing. Let's give it up for the China Watchers, China Watcher. We have to pretend yeah. there's more people than, than, than uh, that. You can add that on the track. Right. Right? I'll, I'll add it. I'll, well, I'll, yeah, I'll put a delay on it and redouble it. Right? Anyway, Bill, it has been far too long since you've joined us on Seneca. Some of you folks will certainly remember back uh, back when we were all in Beijing together. Bill was a real regular on the show. Uh, you know, Bill's of course the man behind the excellent, the indispensable. Uh, po- uh newsletter, uh, which he's been doing now for many years and which is continues to be of just absolutely enormous value. Uh, his ability to read and digest so many news sources, not only in English, uh, but more importantly in Chinese, and to curate a newsletter that reliably gets the, the most important stories of the day. Uh, it's won him a lot of readers and made him really the go-to guy for a thoughtful take on a huge range of China-related topics from technology to finance, and rarely a week goes by where I don't see you quoted in one of the major newspapers now. It's So you're doing a good job, man. Uh, So today, we are going to try uh, to get him to spill some of his secrets, and we will talk about how one goes about equipping oneself intellectually to be a top China watcher. He is going to make all sorts of modest uh, protests against this invariably, but uh, I'm going to be persistent, and we will get him to provide a masterclass for you folks here, reserved for posterity, right here on the Seneca podcast. But before we get into the trade craft, uh, let's see him do his thing. What do you think? Uh, I, I apologize now to the listeners at home who are, who are only hearing this well after the events. But today, as we are recording, Chinese President Xi Jinping is at Mar-a-Lago in Florida to meet with I hate saying his name. Donald Trump. <laughs> In uh, what, you know, Bill, you've dubbed it the Citrus Summit, right? 
Yes. So, so actually, that was that was from a reader who needs to stay unnamed. Uh, okay. Well, the Citrus the, Summit. The Citrus Summit. Um, so, what is it? Is it going to be like a lemon, or is it going to be a juicy and delectable Florida orange? Probably neither. Probably neither. Probably okay. So, like what, a, what is it going to be? And so, I mean, I guess what we need to, uh, to to get your your quick take on this thing. Besides that, sure. What, what do we expect? Well, I think that going back to doing the newsletter, it's it's interesting trying to wade through all the punditry, literally hundreds of op-eds about what's going to happen and what Trump should do and what she should she should do, um, and a lot of the a lot of people are saying they shouldn't meet that Trump shouldn't meet because the U.S. isn't ready, and I think that's a big mistake. I think that it's much better that they're talking than they're not. There are a lot of really important issues between the two countries. I also think that um, one of the arguments as well, there have the appointees the sort of the, do the Asia stuff and the Department of Defense or State or Treasury. Um, they're not in place, so therefore the bureaucracy can't possibly be prepared for this summit. You know, there's some validity there, but I think that leaves out uh, and does a real disservice to the folks, the career people in the various agencies and departments around D.C. and in the embassy who are extremely good on China. The real issue, I think, is no matter what they come up with, the president will most likely ignore them because he's not into big grand strategies. He's not into consistency, it looks like. So there's a reason, I think, that you know his son-in-law is, appears to be running from all sorts of reports, running the China policy that he's working quite closely with Henry Kissinger, who may actually be in Mar-a-Lago, mm-hmm. depending on how you interpret this, um, uh, some rumors in this report in Politico. Um, so I think that ultimately, how this summit goes, I think it's much more, much better that they're talking than they're not. Uh, 24 hours is not a long time. I think that I would expect President Trump to publicly be quite gracious. I would imagine that... Um, Privately, there will be some tough conversations around North Korea, around trade. You know, I think that ultimately, though, there's so many issues in a relationship that need to be discussed. Some are going to get dropped because there just won't be enough time and enough bandwidth. But I really, you know, I, I would be surprised if this is not doesn't we don't come out of this saying this is a successful summit you know you have to look back at the various meetings that president obama had with i like that saying that better um that president obama (laughs) had with xi and you know especially the last couple not you know the climate one was big but then the last one they had they sort of re-announced a bunch of stuff you know as one of my friends in the in in the government sort of said yeah well they we had to re-announce it because we didn't have anything else to really push and so (laughs) you know I think it also goes back to what is a successful summit is it that we don't go to war is it that that President Trump doesn't you know tonight get on Twitter and start um, berating yeah, Xi or the Chinese tomorrow, right. or is it tomorrow? You know, and frankly, I think, you know, I think it was AFP or FT or somebody, you know, talked about how the Chinese are coming with a package of That's what they AFP, call right. Twitter, Twitter deliverables. So I prefer Twitterables, but whatever you want to call it. So the idea that the Chinese have, have adjusted their messaging so that they can give the president enough, you know, 140 character sound bites to make him look like he's, he's achieved victory. <laughs> yeah, 700,000 jobs, I think that was one of the Twitterable deliverables. But, but I, you know, I think, you know, the other thing that I think a couple of things. One is there's this conventional wisdom that she is desperate or very concerned. He's, he, he has to make the summit work because if he doesn't, he's exposed politically back in Beijing because this is a very sensitive year and the run up to the 19th Party Congress, blah, blah, blah. The reality, though, I think is that President Trump has shown himself to be so inconsistent and so volatile that, frankly, it's very difficult, I think, for anything to be held against Xi because who the 
hell can manage President Trump in the uh, yeah. U.S.? I, th- I think it's really interesting that. But that it's the convention. You know, the one of the things that it, well, this is a, we'll go back to. It, but one of the things that happens in China watching is this this conventional wisdom congeals very quickly and spreads very rapidly. And you know, if you go back and look at the history of trying to figure out what's going on in China, first of all, most people in China have no idea what's going on. Right? It's that's the nature of the Communist Party and how they want to control information. But also, most of the time, I will say very confidently, the conventional wisdom, certainly in the West, is wrong about what's going on. So I would say, again, going back to what it's always better to be talking than not. You know, will Trump somehow give away a bunch of stuff? I don't think he actually can. So I think I might, you know, I, yesterday in my newsletter, two days ago, I said it would be bland. I think it's really interesting, though, that, that you're not really talking about um, machinations within Zhongnanhai as much as talking about the, you know, palace intrigue within the Trump White House. Uh, what is going on there? If you want to break that down really quickly, because, you know, well, to be a China watcher today in U.S. China stuff, you need to be able to watch the dynamic between, on the one hand, you know, you got your Peter Navarro and, and your, uh, your your Michael Pillsbury and, uh, I don't think you know, he's not Bannon, really, possibly. Pillsbury's yeah, not, not, not um, really. Well, I think it's very actually very interesting because because the nature of my newsletter, I have a lot of uh, a lot of readers in this town, a lot of readers in governments around, around the world. And, you know, I've had a, f- a few, more than a few conversations over the last couple of months with um, people in government, people in the financial world, who, you know, the questions shifted from what's going on, you know, help us try and understand what, what may or may not be happening in Beijing to what's going on in D.C. What is the, what it's, it's and it's actually, um, you know, not that I have any clue what's going on in Beijing, but but it's remarkable. Uh, recently, I think it's shifted, but at least through the transition into the first five or six weeks of the administration, or maybe a little longer, it was remarkable how little anybody knew what, you know, we can say what the China policy is going to be. It's actually how little anyone knew what any of the policy were going to be because I think that that speaks to the nature of the president's approach to management. Um, and so on the China side, it looks like we are, um, you know, there's a broadly, I think, at least two camps. You sort of have the America Firsters, which is, you know, Navarro, Bannon types. And then you have more of, for lack of a better term, the globalists like, you know, Gary Cohn. Um, I think certainly uh, the Secretary of State, the, the um, Secretary of Defense, probably the Treasury Secretary, probably his son-in-law, especially well, if his Wilbur son-in-law Ross is, is supposedly on the other side now, right? Uh, who knows? Uh, and, and especially if his son-in-law is, uh, is channeling Henry Kissinger and Hank Paulson, then I think you're going to see uh, much more of uh, much more consistency in the in the U.S.-China relationship. Now, we have to remember, though, that during the election, uh, at the end of the Obama years, it was very clear the Clinton side was not going to be soft on China. There were a lot of folks who were advising uh, Secretary Clinton at a very high level who were going to have jobs doing Asia policy or China policy, who were pushing for a much um, a much more forceful muscular, approach yeah. and muscular approach to China, both from an economic and trade perspective as well as from a military perspective. So um, in many ways, I think there there was some bipartisan, real bipartisan agreement that the relationship with China was not heading the right direction and that the U.S. approach needed to change. You know, I think that I certainly believe that needed to change. I would just prefer that there be more, a little more coherence and consistency um, than I think what we've seen over the last, uh, I guess Trump's been in office for 11 weeks, right? Right. Although we said 13 today. So as someone joked on Twitter, that means he's only going to be president for three years on his timeline. <laughs> 
So I guess let's get into the meat of the conversation here today. We're, we're really talking about what it is, what it means to be, an, and how to be an effective China watcher. Um, you know, this is something that you and I have both been doing for a, a very long time now. We both started off as academics or sort of, you know, in, in graduate programs. Neither of us ended up in academia. Neither of us actually works as a reporter, but both of us are, are sort of in the game. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do, to, you know, to be a China watcher. Uh, I want to first talk to you a little bit about the state of the profession. Um, you know, where are we now? Now, uh, relative to the people who came before us, to that, the you know, what are the advantages and disadvantages that we might have uh, relative to people in that kind of great generation? Uh, and then, you know, what are some of the challenges that are conf- confronting the younger generation, people sort of younger than us? Let's, let's start with our our elders and betters. Uh, the, you know, we we read their books still. Uh, many of them are still actively teaching. Many of them are, are very very influential in policy making. Uh, what do they have going for them? Well, they were first, you know, I mean, you go back and, and you know, I, I think most of the people in this room are not 30 yet, a um, few exceptions, starting with us. Um, you know, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, uh, it was very difficult to go to China. There there wasn't, beyond an academic career, there, was, there weren't a lot of opportunities. Um, and I think the field attracted some interesting people who um, were... Uh, perhaps eccentric, perhaps quirky, um, and <laughs> the uh, and but you ultimately, I think the, the people and there are mostly men in the U.S. at least. Um, you you you. It was easy to or relatively easy to become sort of a gatekeeper for and be a generalist because not that many people could could be. Um, uh, competent in language. Not many people had experience living in China. Not many people really had the had the had spent the time or the study to learn about China, and so there were some very good people. And but now the thing is, is now we've got it going both ways. You've got it's easy to go to China. It's easy to live there. And there are also how many really smart Chinese scholars who are living in the U.S. and in Europe who are contributing to the field too. So that's it's right. A, it's a completely changed dynamic. So whereas maybe 20, 30 years ago you could be an expert in China, now that's like saying I'm expert. In America, you have to have real domain knowledge and very specific things and real experience and competency. And the sort of the broad that's why I hate this like China. I mean, thanks, Evan, but I hate that term because it's like. It's it's meaningless. But you are still actually, you know, a generalist compared to a lot of other people. And part of the reason for that is that you stayed out of academia. Academia these days is very, very, very. Well, I was strongly- engaged to an academic, and I, don't, you know, anyway. Right. But I think also the the um, I mean the thing about the newsletter, and one of the reasons I do what I do is was the sense that I'm not smart enough to opine on all these issues myself, but it's such a big topic. I mean, it's China, it's huge. It's a massive topic. It's, it's a river of information was to try and pull out interesting tidbits that people smarter than me were talking about and give kind of a meta approach that helps people sort of know or, or have a better sense of where to look and where to focus. Right. Well, let's, I want to talk about the, this whole specialization thing. These days, when you are working in a graduate program, you're basically told there's no such thing as something too narrow, a topic too small. I mean, you look at you know one little segment of society in a given year or in a very, very narrow slice of time. Uh, this is a very different world than when, when we – I mean, I, I still actually have a little bit of longing for those old people who could be generalists, who could actually engage on a whole number of topics. And I think that part of the reason is that the academia now is very biased against uh, – against area studies, it now focuses on, and and I think that this is in, in many ways very unfortunate, on the disciplines. You have to be an economist or a political scientist or an historian. And I still believe that to get the place, to get China 
some holism is still necessary. Don't you agree? Don't no, you I agree. That? And I think it, it also, you know, there, there's real value in um, the folks who are more generalist. I mean, my background, so I, I went to... Uh, I went to undergrad at Middlebury, graduated in 1990. I went to uh, SICE, I graduated in 95, and I did China studies. My advisor was uh, Lyman, or Alice Miller, uh, and my focus was Chinese politics. So my sort of master's level specialty was, was Chinese politics, which is one of the reasons why I like sort of, you know, Chinese politics is fascinating. Um, but I think the the, uh, the people who are out there, like the David Lamptons, the Alice Millers, um, you know, that generation, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm leaving out a bunch of people, but the ability for them to synthesize and explain is of value, especially in this town. And especially there, you know, people who who are trying to make certain decisions, they, they actually too much specialization can be problematic. It needs to be filtered, filtered and presented in a way that um, is smart but also useful. And if it's too specialized, sometimes it can be too too granular, not that useful. That's right. And I think there are, there are actually very few people now uh, who are, say, in their 30s or in their 40s who present themselves as, as sort of all-arounders who can sit down uh, in front of a microphone or in front of a, a camera on TV and, and talk about a huge range of issues, everything from economic issues like trade to security issues, uh, North Korea. And it's it's I think it's there's there's things that have been gained through specialization, but also a great deal that's been lost. But but the other thing too is it's it's harder to be that generalist because we all have so much more knowledge about China. Again, both from the you know the number of Americans who've gone to China to study and live, but also the number of Chinese that are here studying, living, working, and so you know whereas before. It was it was easy to come across as an expert. Now it's much much harder because it's like saying I'm an American expert. How many American experts would you meet, and how many would you trust if they said they're an American? Expert? I would laugh at them. Right, right. Of course. Right. I mean, look at. But, look but at, no, no, sorry, neither, but, we don't call ourselves. No, but but look at for experts, example, I mean, you know, look at look at the election. Right. How many experts in the political world who were you know lived their lives in American politics got the election wrong? Right. And this is an open society where the data is there if you know where to look. Whereas China is you know still, especially when it comes to anything around politics is a very much, opaque very and it's it's more opaque now than it was when xi jinping came to power right this is all very true uh let's talk about the younger generation then i mean the people sort of younger th- than us i i uh think they're while you know you and me maybe we were that first batch of people who came and lived for a long time both bill and i were in china in the late 1980s and he was a rock star and then I met him the first time at the Friendship Hotel, like around the pool, and to say you had a lot of groupies. <laughs> I also was thinner. So are you. Uh, but I remember. Yeah. We were... Hair was a little darker. Your hair is about the same. Yeah, my hair is about the same. <laughs> anyway, uh, that is neither here nor there. That part I can delete. But we we were, um, you know, we were, we were both there in '89. We were both in back in Beijing in, in the early '90s, and then I came back, you know, in '96. You came back a little later, later, but, 2004, right, right, but but um, you know, we were sort of still that first batch of people for whom. It was no longer such a hardship to live there. It wasn't arduous even getting there. Now, of course, it's just... It's, it's, but the it's, hardship made it interesting. Now it's kind of right. boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why you I never lived in Shanghai. Shanghai was always like too yeah, easy. Yeah, too easy, right. It's, it's, uh, it's like, why bother? I mean, yeah. you just surf the internet from home and, and you know what's going on there. <laughs> but no, uh, the, the thing that... What about these younger people? So I feel like they have a lot of advantages. There are so many of them with incredibly good language skills. Right. So many of them uh, who... Uh, they, they've had the benefit of all of this, this scholarship that's gone before. They're they're sort of caught up on their and for them it's it's no big deal. They're not haunted by the ghosts of 1989 uh, so much anymore. But 
what don't they have? I think maybe is it. Do you think that it's it's of use to us that we saw China in? They don't in the have early our days? age and wisdom and experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean I think you know they 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 there is per- perhaps some perspective that um, that is useful, but at the same time, as you said, you know the, the language is so important, and and it's it's great to see how many. Um, how many people have such better language skills? I think than most people in our generation, right. um, and also the just the accessibility. For you. No, but you remember? I mean, we were there. You know, I remember I was there in, in ninety, I think ninety one. I was living for a while at Beis Shaddai's in the foreign dorm, and you know, you had a Chinese friend come over. They had to register, right. show their ID, right? And it was a huge hassle. So it was there were all sorts of barriers to having relationships, you know, just friendships with people, and there was all sorts of you know problems for the Chinese person potentially in terms of just hassle and, you know, the guan, all sorts of stuff. That stuff is, you know, not, that's gone now for the most part. You right, know, right, a little right. bit back from this year, you know, there's little cartoons about watch out for the foreign academics, right? right? Yeah, or the evil bit, foreign that, academics who are actually spies, right? foreign boy, right. But, but um, so, so there's, there, it's, it's, it's not quite the same as going to Tokyo or Seoul or somewhere in Europe, but it's a lot closer than it was when we were there. Sure, sure. Uh, we, we, we talked about friends and making friends. I think that's a really, really important thing. Um, the young people have that advantage as well. I mean, they take it for granted that they're going to go there and they're going to have lots of Chinese friends. I actually know a lot of people in my sort of peer group who never really made close Chinese friends. But I think that's, may, may I venture to say, this is one of the things that I think separates you. You have this really interesting group of people. I've met them and drunk with them before. Uh, these guys, they're all like these big bellied, kind of boisterous mothers who, who uh, played soccer with you back in the early 90s. Yeah, we yeah. all were pretty fit. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's not go there anymore. <laughs> no, just, I mean, I, I, don't, all, I, don't know, I don't know how fit. you can live in a country and not have, you know, right, right, right. not have friends um and and i think you know I, I did when i first went there i first went there in 89 as a junior um the spring of 89 which was an interesting time and i made the classic mistake of you know what, the chinese sucked <laughs> and um uh you know i hung out with expats um uh, okay this isn't good um hung out with expats and you know realized that i had no clue what was going on not that i have a little more clue now but but so when i went back in late 91 I really wanted to make sure that I did it differently. And, you know, again, it's just so cliche, but one of the lessons, you know, it's, it's you know, language issues, cultural issues, but like the guys I'm friends with, they're just people, you know? I mean, you get past some of the, some of the sort of the things you worry about and you realize that people kind of all want the same thing. And that sounds too simplistic, but at the same time, it served me pretty well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're, they're an interesting group because they've, they've, all, they've gone off to do a whole range of different things. Some of them are sort of, you know, corrupt officials. And some of them are successful business owners. And I, I, my wife has a group of people that she worked with uh, immediately after, when she, after finishing high school. Uh, she worked at a, a restaurant and uh, had a group of, of girls who were also waitresses at that restaurant and they're all still or some of them have moved on and one's in San Jose and, but they're mostly still in Beijing and they get together once in a while I called them Wujihui when they get together a bunch of little, but, but it's really uh, it's fascinating some of them are you know are fantastically wealthy some of them have had you know terrific uh, very kind of stable marriages other ones have had you know multiple divorces uh, they've, they've had a, a, a wide range of different you know health horrors 
affairs uh, of, 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 of marital strife, all, all sorts of, of interesting things. But they're in such different walks of life. Some of them live in you know mansions. Others live in just hovels. It's, uh, there's five or six of these girls, and they all still get together really regularly, and it's, it's such a terrific little slice. Well, I keep trying to get Fanfan to write about this. I think it would be such a, a great... Because, you know, it was from that one moment in the late 19... I guess it was the early 1980s. Uh, the late 1980s when, when suddenly, boom, they all sort of spread out into different segments yeah. of society. No, we knew. I mean, that was the thing. We were there in the early 90s. Everybody was poor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we were we were relatively rich. I went back in 2004 and was relatively rich. And by 2010, I was like the poor guy. Right. No, I, I, I've been it's the poor quite, guy my whole time. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's it's it's. But it's, but I think so to the to the, the the to that younger generation. I mean, I look at people like like you know Matt Sheehan, who's got this great news. Can we promote another newsletter? Yeah, in, absolutely. In China, California, California, yeah. Um, and he's working on a book about sort of the connections between California and China. And he's someone who he went over when he was twenty one, twenty two. He ended up working for the Huffington Post. Good great Chinese, Chinese lot yeah, of really. you know, very good Chinese, a lot of Chinese friends. Um, you know, took a took I think a very immersive approach that uh, ultimately gives you know but the, the, it gives you a perspective on life in China the problem is right, we're in Beijing so we have a perspective on a very very tiny slice of Beijing right you ask me what's going on Anhui or Yunnan and you know yeah and I'm, I'm, I'm out of my depth there right well, I mean, but like yeah but yeah uh, then, so Matt is a really good example of one of these younger guys yeah. who's connected I think other people I'd throw in that list Alakash Alakash absolutely uh, Eric Fish uh, people like that there's you know some terrific younger reporters who are coming up uh, Amy Chin Ooh, I would say yeah, Amy, oh, her Amy, stuff is great yeah yeah her times. stuff is absolutely great uh, so I'm really actually very encouraged at least by the, the, the new crop of, of writers of journalists who are, who, are, who are doing this not as familiar with the Academics, but anyway, uh, I wanted to, one of the things that I I find uh, I I'm cursed maybe that I know the sides of every argument of every major issue so f- so well so up and down back and forth now that I can kind of play myself in mental chess to a stalemate every time when it comes to all these issues. I feel like is it possible for us to be too context aware, too nuanced, too you know, too obsessed with painting things in shades of gray. I mean, does that maybe all, all of our our caveats and all of our, our 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 hedging can that amount to not much more than moral cowardice? Do we kind of lose? I think on some issues, I think it's yeah. important to have the understand the nuances and understand the complexities. Uh, I think you know we've talked about it on our previous podcasts. You know, people ask me this is a question, sort of what you know, what's important about trying to trying to live in China as a foreigner. Your language is important, but also the ability to master cognitive dissonance, yeah. to sort of understand that there are things that are different in China that just aren't going to make sense to someone who, say, grew up in America. That doesn't mean, though, for things like human rights or other issues around, um, you know, some of the some of the repression where, you know. Th- there has to be some kind of a bottom line where, where I think at some point the gray has to go away. Yeah, even there, uh, when, when we're talking about things like human rights, though, I mean, it, it strikes me that we're talking really about these bedrock philosophical assumptions often. And uh, I, I certainly have my own positions on this, but uh, it quite, kind of boils down, doesn't it, to whether you are ultimately a moral absolutist or some kind of a cultural relativist. And I, I, I maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, Bill, you could correct me. But I feel like people on my side of the political spectrum uh, back in the day when I was younger, we were pretty uniformly on the side of, of cultural relativism. That is that we understood that a, a 
uh, a country, an ethnicity, a people's historical experience, their economic circumstances, their cultures, their religions, religious traditions, and so forth, they they could wind up with a with different sets of values, and that that we had to be respectful. I mean, it, it's a slippery slope. You you could use it to justify you know, all sorts of you know barbarities, of course. But you know, I tended to want to slip down that slope when I got to it, and and it wasn't really uh, an issue for many. I think on the on the left, but somewhere along the way. There was a big change, right? And I, I mean, some people might date it to the prevalence of, of human rights in, in Jimmy Carter's sort of diplomatic mix. Some people might date it to the collapse of Soviet communism some decades later in the end, in, in the late 80s and in the early 90s. Uh, what do you feel about this? Bill, do you, do you feel like um, uh, there there's room for relativism still or that it, it, it needs, maybe ought to be revived to some extent? Well, I frankly think it's harder and harder as an American to criticize, unfortunately, you know, between um, stuff that's happening inside America, stuff that, you know, we've been doing um, in the name of democracy around the world. I mean, you know, and so and so whether you want to believe that there's some sort of absolutism, I think ultimately if your own country isn't actually walking the talk, that makes the criticisms much more hollow. And I think that's sure. a very it's a very unfortunate for this time in history. Right. But let's let's take a more concrete example. Let's take something like uh internet censorship. I mean it's it's no surprise, I think, that most Americans abhor the very idea of internet censorship. I mean, sure. Kitty porn, things like that. Sure, we're we're going, you know, snuff films. We're we're going to want to censor that. But in general, especially political internet, uh, political uh, censorship of any sort, we 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 reject that generally out of hand. Uh, but I, I think you know it, it's probably helpful to think when you look at a country like the United States. I mean, in 1791, we ratified this this marvelous document, the first 10 amendments to the, the U.S. Constitution, the first of which, and there's a reason why it's the first amendment, right? I mean, it's such a pillar of our political culture. Uh, but in 1791, when we nobly flew open the, the floodgates of, of, of information freedom, how fast really did information travel? I mean, you know, it moved around in, in leather satchels on the side of a, of a horse, right? Didn't move exactly so fast. I mean, literacy rates were pretty low. I mean, people were still writing in quill pen, right? What, what though, I mean, is, that, is, it, is it comparable? That when, you, when you look at China in the year 2017, you have, what, 731 million people online now, 700 million people all carrying around a smartphone, this device that's capable of transmitting not just voice, but text, but, you know, high-definition video around the world instantaneously. Isn't that a lot more water behind the floodgate? Isn't there, I mean, can't, can't you sort of cut some sort of historical slack and invoke kind of a relativist argument to at least say, look, the case for gradual opening isn't completely uh, crazy? Well, I mean, I think I think that, you know, this is a very complicated question. I think when you look at a lot of the censorship, censorship in China, you know, it's not about sort of censoring stuff about liberal values, democracy. It's about covering up misdeeds by local officials. And so it's basically, you know, the, and, and, you know, I think it ties into 
at least what Xi Jinping is talking about with since he came to came into power, which is not just the corruption campaign, but improving official behavior, um, making the party actually work for the people. Uh, I mean, imagine the, 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 that no, we're not but, talking about that. No, imagine no, but, that, that, sure, that stuff, no, I mean, we can all agree. But, is, but, is, but is, I mean, the censorship, you know, for example, the latest thing going on is this thing in Luzhou where this kid was beaten to death, right? And, you know, the original story was he jumped out of a building, but he had all these weird bruises that did, didn't mesh with actually, like, falling out of a building and you know one of the stories going on is that he was beaten to death by a gang of bullies some of whom were connected to the local officials local police right so why is that being censored so why why is a case like that well, we know so that, that dangerous. is not being handed down by the cyberspace administration of china i'm i'm talking about you know the the other sort of internet censorship you know that that prevents you from uh you know organizing for uh sort of Social justice purposes, or you know, why is there censorship of, of 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 strident criticism of policy and things like that? Let's, I mean, let's 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 talk about that. Right, but for example, the fem the feminist five, right? They, you know, they were. I don't think the Communist Party cares about the fact that they were talking about feminist issues. So their issue, their fact, issue was not, organizing. Let's not look at any specific instances. Let's look at sort of the, the principle of it. Uh, you know, at, at that level. Well, I think I think the reality is I think if if there were a political system, you know, it's again I think Secretary Clinton probably wishes there was some censorship in America, given what happened last last <laughs> fall, right? But I think that you know the if if there were a and I'm not sort of saying China has to have free press, but if there were yet, but if there were more of a um, ability for citizens to have some feedback. I mean, the thing about Weibo, the thing about this public sphere was it was really for the first time that you could have people. Provide you talked about this, you know, giving Absolutely. that feed, you know, yeah. giving that helping close that feedback. That was loop more deliberative, was going on. Right. It was and more participatory, and it, even and it, if it wasn't. It was yeah. too problematic for the party right. because what it was doing was it was close. It was this. It was. It was. It was. It was revealing too many problems with governance. Really deep rooted. Really right. deep rooted problems with governance, and you know, so you can address that by censoring, or you can address that by fixing the governance. And the governance, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say they have to become a liberal democracy to improve governance. I think, as an American, that's sort of my default position. But the reality is, is it's a complicated. You can place, make incremental improvements in rule of law, right? And, and, right, right. You know, again, look at our own history. We weren't. I mean, are you really a truly liberal democracy when you have slaves and women can't vote? Right. I mean, it took a while, right? It would be great if China could get there. I don't think it's reasonable to expect it to get there tomorrow. But my point is, when it comes to censorship, I think that ultimately it is, um, you know, there's this negative feedback loop now where the party, and specifically the Cyberspace Administration, that whole bureaucracy, starting with the leading group that Xi Jinping set up, you know, you've got thousands of people whose job it is to censor, so they're going to censor. And so you, so that that is a bureaucratic system that, if they're not censoring, they're not doing their job, therefore why now, are they getting paid? It has a sort of so you have this bureaucratic inertia, inertia yeah, yeah, right. that's, that's, that, but ultimately... It is something I think that does China and the Chinese people a disservice. Well, I would certainly agree. It's just I, I'm, and I would also assert that since 2013, there's been no evidence at all of any kind of gradual opening. It's in fact, it's just been tightening down, right? I mean, there's the little little question. There. I think we're in complete agreement there. Uh, let me let me ta raise another of the, the for me what's you know a big thorny and and ever present issue for me, and that is the question of. Uh, attaining a sense of proportion of things in, in China. You know, here in the United States, I, I can read about uh, the killing of uh, an unarmed black man by a white cop that results in, you know, acts of civil disobedience. And I won't think that America is absolutely going to hell in a handbasket. I, I will recognize that there are, there are 
deep structural problems of racism in the police force. But I can still kind of contextualize that. I can still sort of put that in perspective. That doesn't mean, I mean, that can exist next to mass incarceration, next to all these other things. But it can it can also, you know, be there next to a lot of the things that I love about America. And I get a sense of proportion as somebody who lives here. Do we, we have trouble doing that, though, when we look at China. I think a lot of people have a lot of trouble doing that. Uh, would you agree? Um, well, I think I think there's, you know, there, there are a few ways to look at that. One is certainly in the Western media, so much of how China is looked at is still viewed with within partially at least the frame of 1989, where it almost tipped over, right? It almost sort of went the other way and went the way of Eastern Europe and Soviet Union. And so, and you know, certainly the party has reacted like it almost tipped over. And so, right. so much that they've done over the last 28 years has been to make sure that doesn't happen again. And so, you know, I think people are always looking for the next. And then, you know, Eastern Europe went down, Soviet Union went down, you know, you've had the Arab Spring. People are looking for the spark, right? And you want to be the person that finds the spark. And people hope for that. But I think that, you know, it also, though, it does, it makes it look like the, the very tight censorship, the tightening censorship, the very obvious security presence in big cities like Beijing. It does make it look like the Communist Party is very worried about something. Mm-hmm. And so... You wonder, are they really brittle and scared, which is another narrative, and they're fearful of everything, uh, or is it, and so therefore, if you believe that, then certainly, you know, you can have the version of the Tunisian, uh, was it a fruit seller? Yeah, they, they, a fruit event, vendor, vendor, you know, who, who set, sets, sets off China on this course of, you know, unrest across the country. You know, there is another way to look at it, though, which is, as you said, I mean, it's a very complicated country. There aren't enough resources. There are too many people. There are a lot of people who are very frustrated. There are governance issues. Some of China has done, has improved its governance. The party, you know, there's still ways to go on governance. There's a lot of frustration, as you know. You know, people, it's kind of scary sometimes where you sort of see how close to the surface kind of tensions are. Um, And so... But how, like you said, how do you take something where there's some sort of incidence of local, low-level unrest, and you know how do you project that or not project that into something much more systemic? But I think part of the problem. So, is what is, advice do you have? I mean, for I mean, because this is what we're we're doing today. How do you give somebody uh, the tools to to get that that proportion, that sense of perspective? Uh. I, I mean, I think some of it's common sense, some of it's experience, some of it is, uh, it's, it's, but at the same time, you know, you also don't be, oh, it's no big deal. And then, of course, like the next day, it, sorry, right. big, big stuff happens. Um, so I think that, you know, but, but I think, I, I do think people should resist um, the conventional wisdom or just falling into the narrative that it's really brittle and all it's going to take is sort of one little push and it's all going to come down. Right. I think there's a lot more resilience in the system and a lot more, um, you know, you, you, you to, to the earlier discussion we were having about sort of what's changed in different perspective, again, when we first started going to China, everybody was poor. Right. Now you've got hundreds of millions of people who have a lot to lose. And so it's going to take a lot for what 
our low-level things or localized things to become something much broader because there's a lot at risk. There's a lot if, of buy-in into the system. And there's a lot look, at stake. Absolutely. And if you look at what Xi Jinping has and the party, especially under Xi Jinping, I think have been very effective at doing, has been, and, and I think this is part of the logic behind the tightening, is they very effectively and very very publicly raised the costs. Yes. So, it you know, things you could do five or six years ago, you do now, you, you get you run into a lot of problems and that sucks in a lot of ways but from a governing perspective it's very effective and a control perspective the other things that we have little you know uh, perspective I mean, we, we, we have difficulty with proportion uh if you look, look look at the ethnic Chinese people that they have actually writing uh, op-ed pieces for a publication like the New York Times you have some people like um, uh, Yu Hua you have what Murong um, Xuetun you have I mean what do these people all have in common is that they're all pretty ferocious critics of the system right uh, it's it's easy for us to kind of assume that uh, the intelligentsia as a whole is on the brink of rebellion. Uh, we look. We look at an artist like you know Ai Weiwei, and he's like a household name in America. Uh, do your Do your friends know who he is in China? They They do, but they, I mean, they, he, you know, I, mean, you know I, I gotta tell you, you know though, the, my, you know, the people I know who are the, who are the most ferocious critics of the system were were my friends who are party members. Right. Um, well, they know the, the truth. Well, that's that's <laughs> what they say. Is that they, you know, and and so it's it's. I think that ultimately. Um, and you know this goes back to this is a, a little bit of a of a of a tangent, but it goes back to the things you still hear from fewer people now, but I would call them the more hopeful types, which is that you know when Xi Jinping came into power, the place was a mess, and we saw that in Beijing. It really did feel like things could could go could fall apart. Yeah, in September two thousand twelve, the, the it really corruption. Felt like it, right? I mean, it really you know things were not going well. And so he spent the last four years trying to improve governance. And I think, you know, I, I, again, the corruption crackdown, yes, it's about political power. It's about taking out enemies. Um, a, taking a, a one-dimensional reductionist approach, I think, is a mistake. I think it's, it, there are many dimensions to it. Improving governance is absolutely part of it. And so the, the hopeful group, and I wish I were in this camp, but I'm, that's why I named my newsletter Cynicism. I'm not yet there, is that as he... You know, into the 19th Party Congress, he's more comfortable in power. He's he's fixed some of the governance issues. There's an ability to sort of let off a little bit and loosen up again because ultimately, and this goes back to I think one of the main contradictions that forget the foreigners. A lot of Chinese people point out is you can't build the modern economy that they want when you're cracking down on everything. Mm-hmm. So so this contradiction can go on I think for a lot longer than 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 certainly people in the West think, but ultimately there does have to be some. Resolution, um, of some resolution of this contradiction, or else China will not, and the Chinese people in China will not be able to. No, I completely agree there. Speaking of, you know, the Chinese people fulfilling their potential, one of these other things that one often hears. I mean, I, we were talking about this earlier. When we were just having coffee. You know, you'll you'll hear uh, a government official or, or somebody who is sort of a naked apologist for China say make a claim like the Chinese Communist pe- uh, Party has lifted X hundred million people out of poverty, and then you'll hear somebody you know come in and say, look, that strips the Chinese people of agency. It wasn't, the party had nothing to do with it. All they did was get out of the damn way. And it was, you know, X hundred million Chinese people lifted themselves out of poverty. And I, I, I hear that and I think, well, I shake my head at that too. It's like, do you think that really could have happened without uh, the sort of uh, 
you know, the, the infrastructure, the framework with a lot of a lot of things that the government actually did spend money on and, and had, you know, relatively enlightened policy toward. This is just emblematic of a lot of a, a lot of things. Uh, well, it goes back to, I think, the, the thing, which is there's no simple answer. To, to most things, it's just, you know, you, you people like the sort of the binary, you know, and, and certainly when it comes to the media, no offense to media friends, but it's much easier to have a more um, a kind of a, a, a simpler, shorter answer than to say that the answer is it, it all it all matters, right? right? Of course, policies the government enacted helped reduce poverty. But at the same time, policies the government enacted before that, you know, led to the deaths of tens of millions of people right. and abs- you know, absolute poverty. And so they changed those policies. They, you know, they quote unquote unleashed entrepreneurial spirit and they helped create, I mean, in some ways it mirrors some of the discussions in the U.S. about how do we spur economic growth, right? It's sort of the deregulation and, you know, taxes and infrastructure. And, you know, ultimately I think it, it you do need a role for the government and the, the, the Communist Party um, certainly under Deng Xiaoping took a much more a much more enlightened approach to uh, economic growth, but to just say that only you know they lifted these people out of poverty is is I think far too much in the propaganda camp than I think um, than the reality camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one one book that I've read recently that, that has really left a pretty lasting impact on me was uh, John Pompert's new book, uh, The Beautiful country in the middle kingdom uh it's it's about the history of united states china relations and i highly recommend it to anyone or at least go listen to the podcast he did but there's the essence of that book bill you've read it as well right you read an early Mm -hmm. galley of it right Mm -hmm. um you know he talks about how uh, americans and chinese have a a very peculiar a, a very special relationship um i think you could liken it to kind of a a a sibling relationship or maybe a love hate kind of a thing where uh there's a lot of irrationality in in the uh, in the relationship and on both sides. On both sides, absolutely. But let's let's talk as Americans. I think it's fair to say that we have this tendency to set very very high expectations. Um, a lot of it comes from I think a very good place. It comes from uh, our high regard for Chinese people. But invariably, those expectations are not met. They're, we're disappointed. And then we take it really goddamn personally. I mean, we take it's like personally <clears throat> offended that China did not le- live up somehow to our expectations. And that's what John's book is kind of about. Uh, I'm sure you have a take on this. No, I mean, I think, you know, there's certainly, and, you know, John's book is, is, is definitely worth reading. You know, there have been a number of people who've talked about, you know, the missionary influence and the missionary influence in American culture and how we're going to go, you know, the... I mean, it was, it was a very, you know, for all this nice talk, you know, originally it was a very paternalistic and racist approach to China, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was certainly the, it was it was part of, I think, colonialism and the idea that somehow we have a better system and we're going to lift these people, we're going we're gonna to show these heathens the way to enlightenment, so to speak. And so, I mean, I think we shouldn't underestimate that role in sort of the American approach to China. And you think it's still, we still have that hubris? No, I, I think we, absolutely we still have that hubris. And and I think, you know, you look at, it is, a, it is as John talks about, it is a very fraught history. I mean, Chinese are the only race that we actually excluded by law, right? right. In the Chinese Exclusion Act or Exclusionary Act, right? And it was, it was, and so in some ways, it's an abusive relationship. And I think, and 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 now though, you know, 
we're in a cycle now where for the last 30 or so years, uh, engagement has been the main theme in U.S. policy towards China. The idea that um, we will open up our markets, we will engage with, with communist China, we will you know, show communist China what it means to be a capitalist economy. And as, as they become, they build up the economy, they become more capitalist, they understand free markets, they will then buy into the sort of other values that we espouse around democracy and freedom. And I think, you know, now, though, we're in a cycle where the last several years and and certainly over the last couple of years has become more mainstream. There's a lot of disillusionment and there's a lot of questioning of that engagement because certainly under Xi Jinping, it does not look like that. But isn't this just Pomfret's thing again? Isn't this setting up this unrealistically high expectation? That's what I'm saying. We're in this new cycle, right? right, Where where I think we're on a down cycle because they're now. And I think it, it again, I think it would have been reflected in a. In a, in a President Clinton administration. I like saying that too. Um, <laughs> but um, it definitely is in the, pres- in the President Trump administration where, but, but again, I think it was, it was in some ways a bipartisan issue where, where, where you were going to see a reevaluation of um, the U.S. approach to China because there, there is this very, I think, widely held belief now in, in, among people who have power that engagement failed. I mean, I, I can't say who because off the record, but I, I, in 2015, met someone very senior in the Clinton campaign who had worked for uh, the the president for President Clinton, um, who was in China and, and was doing some fundraising, and there were a small group of people, and was telling stories and this and that about the first President Clinton, and then came to a story about... Um, uh, most favored nation status and how they were arguing, you know, why that it needed to be renewed and talked about giving this spiel to a, an important member of Congress about it was all about, you know, we want China, China to buy into the system. And, you know, we know through this engagement that then they will they will start to become more effectively become more like us. And what he said was, and that has failed and we were wrong. And so this was something at the very senior levels where it's fundamentally questioning, I think, one of the key underpinnings of the China relationship. And so for the, you know, the, we started out talking about Mar-a-Lago and, you know, I don't think it's going to be a disaster, but I think it doesn't really matter in a lot of ways what's discussed at Mar-a-Lago because the, the, the trajectory right now is we're in America, I think, in, in, in all sorts of levels in a, in a back in this sort of period of increasing disillusionment towards towards the people's role in China. And, and, yet, and were I to talk to that official today uh, and, and were he to, to say the same thing, that, that this whole uh, engagement that began after Tiananmen with you know Clinton pushing for China's uh, you know permanent most favored nation status and eventual entry into the WTO, I would say listen to what Susan Shirk who was also involved in that process, also in the, in the Clinton uh, era State Department as uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia. Uh, what she said on hearing the Xi Jinping speech at Davos was exactly the opposite. It was that this is sort of proof that the engagement idea did work, that they have bought in. That- so that speech, I think, is interesting because I think that's proof that they know how to use Western PR because my understanding is that at least two Western PR professionals write that speech that she decided after the election to go to Davos. He wasn't going. Right. No, it was. But after the election, he saw the opportunity. A draft was written internally that he didn't like, and so he reached... I still haven't figured out who it was, but he reached out to me. Western PR firms Swear to God, get them to write the speech. And so for me, I don't see that as a fundamental. But he approved the speech. 
because he knew he understood the audience and he understood the impact it would have. And, and I think, so I think we have to differentiate between sort of fundamentally believing that versus being able to tell a good story. And Xi Jinping is a very good politician. All right. Well, I, I actually think that, that uh, it's in ample evidence that China now uh, really feels invested in a lot of these uh, multinational well, they, they absolutely uh, feel, feel invested, and, but, they, but as any strong country is going to pursue its own interests would do, they're going to change them to how they fit for China. And so the disillusionment isn't saying that China is not going to continue to pursue its version of um, economic development. It's that the simplistic assumptions around engagement that if we engage, they will really become more like us. Those, I think, are certainly on the, you know, you want to seek truth from facts. Right now, I think we're certainly not in a place where that, I would I would say that looks like we're headed. If we were going to embrace the this, this simplistic, me- you know, sort of uh, measure of, of more like us, if you were to, uh, without talking to anyone or without looking at, if you were to, to have transported yourself in time from 1991, back when we were in the friendship pool, friendship hotel suddenly to the year 2016 or 2017 in Beijing or Shanghai wouldn't you looking around say oh it really has become more like us can I first go back and buy a bunch of Soho Yuan to sit on? <laughs> um, yes and no. I mean, that's the thing. So, so you so, think it's only superficial? No, I think I think it's obviously changed, but it's changed. It's China. It's a. It's you know, forget the five thousand years of histories stuff, but it's got a long history, a long culture. It's only, they are not twenty five years, right? It's not going to be like us, but but my, but yes, it's changed. But I think you know this is the problem. You go to Shanghai as a foreigner, and it's like, oh my god, it's just like you know, it's like New York, but you know. right. But you go to Zhengzhou as a foreigner, and you see, you go to Xiamen, and you go to Chengdu. Chengdu is a little different. But you see, you see, there are a lot of cities that I know. like Chengdu. No, but so so to answer your question, I think that. There's there's what's on the surface, and then there's what's what's actually going on, and so you can have the, um, you know. But the thing that also struck me was my friends. You're talking about my friends, and you know, I don't think I know any of them who think that if there were, if it were, um, sort of the system opened up like America, that it wouldn't be a disaster, right? Or that. America is not a big problem in a lot of areas, or that for them nationalism is now really is, you know, we're the problem the South China Sea, we're the problem the East China Sea, we're keeping China down. And so, you know, I think it's 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 not the sort of, you know, Gordon Changian or that sort of world of, you know, we've created a monster. I think, though, I do think that we, um, it goes back to, I think there's a, there's a very strong kind of, um, we have a lot of confidence as Americans and a lot of confidence in our system. And I think that we were perhaps a little bit too confident in believing that if we just showed the Chinese what to do, they'd want to be like us. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was a misunderstanding of how Chinese history has and Chinese culture have developed. So all of these lessons, I think, taken together are... And, you know, maybe you haven't drawn anything specifically concrete from this, but I think... Uh, what I would say in, in summation is that uh, to be an effective uh, observer of the political, economic, cultural scene in China, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, many of these things that we've talked about today are really important. I mean, it's having that, that ability to, to, uh, to appreciate the tensions between two things, to, to be able to hold these contradictory ideas in your head at once, to understand that a lot of it is really just gray and not binary, right? 
and also I think to try and understand, I mean, it's so cliched, right? But you try to understand, you know, why you assume or believe the things you believe. Because certainly for me, you know, that was in 89 when I was there and I was, I was a fairly clueless junior in college. And, you know, we were, I was in Beijing. I worked for, I worked as like a fixer translator for CBS for almost two months and lived on Tiananmen Square for a week in, in uh, late May, um, stayed until the third week of June. And, you know, it, it it was interesting you, the assumptions you had as a young American kid going in, and then sort of how that how your worldview changes. Right. And so I think it is, um, and w- where we are now in the world, you look at what's going on. You know, Brexit, Trump, the sort of anti-globalization. Where China is, you know, we're we're at a point where uh, I think not just I mean a lot of people outside of America are certainly questioning our trajectory as a country and the way we're going with Donald Trump, it's actually, I think, quite advantageous to China because it, again, even for those people who want to push, you know, follow the engagement thesis and push towards becoming more like America, we have to wonder as a country, are we still attractive that we're actually going to have that kind of <laughs> pull for people? No, quite seriously. Right. No, no. I, I, I'm, and so, I'm, and so I'm for me, serious, I mean, yeah. one of the reasons I stopped writing for about six weeks after the election was I went into a very deep depression because, you know, I still look at things through the prism of what it means for China and the U.S. And it was like, you know. How all, can I raise my head now and face yeah, it? Yeah, ex- exactly. Right. And looking at my kids and saying, you know, and, and, and so, and, and yes, there's all sorts of American political issues, but when it comes to the China, U.S. China relationship, fundamentally, I think the Trump administration, at least the where we looks like we're headed as a country, uh, ultimately, I think, is gives China much more space globally to pursue their model. And I still don't think the model the Communist Party is pursuing is ultimately good for the world. It's interesting that you, you talk about 89 as sort of an eye-opening moment for you. Uh, it certainly was for me, too. I was also in Beijing during that time. Uh, and when I left China, I went and started my graduate studies. And, and the thing that haunted me the whole time, and I, I realized just that what an absolute idiot I was during, during the whole thing. There was so much that, I, that was right in front of my eyes that I completely missed. I did not pick up the significance. Because, I mean, while I was there, I suspected that there was a... A political theater happening before me that had its own very, very deep-rooted symbolic language, a very culturally conditioned symbolic language, a semiotics that I didn't get, and that I, I had to, you know, go back to school and really try to understand. And I, I think now anyone who looks at what happened and who looks at what unfolded during that time, who doesn't understand what the May Fourth Movement was, you know, seventy years before, who doesn't, you know. Uh, understand the whole tradition of remonstrance and uh, petitioning, uh, who, who doesn't understand the complex relationship between political elites and the the intelligentsia in Chinese history, they missed the whole thing. They didn't, they didn't get any of it. And I'm, uh, that's the, the, the constant source of frustration. For me, uh, I see these people come in to provide the only perspective that 90% of Americans are only going to get. 90% of Americans are going to know what they know about China by reading mainstream media. And that mainstream media is produced by a a cadre of often very, very talented, very well-intentioned, but finite number of people, a couple of hundred, right? You know most of them. I know most of them. These people have their own prejudices and their own privileges, their own biases. And we don't really understand the optical properties of this lens through which most of us are actually viewing China 
And I, I feel like that is one place we could we could all start is just to, and I think that's I'm going to end by saying this. I think you do a tremendous service as an almost ombudsman. You have you've really been there to be uh, quite critical often of the way that China is reported in, in, in the West. And that's one of the, the services that, that I want to thank you for. Uh, and before we get to recommendations, I think we all owe Bill Bishop a no, great no, 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 Thank you. Thank you. Are we doing questions or? Yeah. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna. Uh, I'm gonna, you know, pay some bills here real quick, and then we're <laughs> we're going to uh, move on to the recommendations section. And if you don't have one handy, think of one quickly. <clears throat> so before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at at SubChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SubChina News. You can follow Bill Bishop. Sinicism newsletter is at S-I-N-O-C-I-S-M dot com. Sign up for the free newsletter. It's still free for, for yes. now. Okay. <laughs> and uh, follow him on Twitter. It's newbie at newbie, which I don't think I have to beep. You know, it's it's funny. My, Bill my, Bishop was taken. Right. Bill Bishop. But uh, my kids, my, my, my naughty little son who's now 10 he'll run up to me and say mama she's your mama sha b word b word he is i say johnny no i didn't swear i said b word that's like the f word you know the s word the b word <laughs> but he has to say it with the d shung the b word it's, it's not, so anyway all right I'll, I'll i'll beep that part um anyway recommendations bill what do you have uh, first? a couple of things first a chinese uh you guys have put it in the newsletter and i've put in cynicism the uh um the new uh miniseries about the hero uh corruption investigators and the name of the people um so i'm on episode three it's actually pretty good uh, and uh, has pieces that are, you know, it's based on some real life stories. That the, one of the episodes, they, they, basically, it's it's uh, based on the guy at the energy uh, the energy administration who was uh, arrested in, in one of his apartments. They found, I think, a couple hundred million in cash. Right in his basement, just like stacks they, and of all money. over. And so there's there's a scene where the this villa has all. It's like you know behind the wall under the bedspread and the fridge. And anyway, it's 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 actually worth watching. Uh, I found it on QQ Video. It's it should be available. Um, the Chinese name is um, what is it? Remy Nami, I think, right? Um, and um, it's quite good and then the other one and he's in town in the next week giving some book talks is Ian Johnson's Soul of China which um, we're, we're going to be talking to him very soon are you okay uh, yeah, yeah, no, I got no, an uh, early copy and it's it's um, it's a it's a, you know he's a great writer it's a, it's he a is good a great book writer. I don't agree with everything but it's absolutely um, worth reading yeah we're going to have Ian on the show very soon so uh, look forward to that one thanks Bill my pleasure. Thanks, everyone. All right. So, uh, what is my recommendation for the week? Oh, yeah. Right. It's actually one that I've not read yet. But uh, Yuval Harari has a new book out called Homo Deus. He is the author of Sapiens. I don't know. Has anyone in the audience read Sapiens? Really, 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 yeah, phenomenally interesting book. Don't necessarily agree with everything that he says, uh, but the guy, no question at all, he's a very pr- provocative and very original writer. Uh, the new one uh, looks into not the human past, as Sapiens did, you know, sort of the evolutionary psychology, the, the kind of uh, evolutionary development of, of humanity and our our thinking, uh, 
but now into the future, sort of the future of, of humanity uh, in a biological sense, in a kind of sort of cultural sense, the nexus between these two things. Uh, this one is looks like a really terrific book. I just, just started talking into it, but uh, really looking forward to finishing it. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at, at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care. Let's hear it for Bill Bishop. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>